You're listening to the Monocle Daily, first broadcast on the 5th of December 2022 on Monocle 24. Haiti descends yet further into chaos. Why do some crises attract less attention than others? The UK's opposition leaders suggest that perhaps the country's citizens could start electing their upper house. And the UK's rival, but equally baffling, word of the year polls. I'm Andrew Muller. The Monocle Daily starts now. Welcome to the Monocle Daily, coming to you from our studios here at Midori House in London. I'm Andrew Muller. My guests, Terry Stiasny and Sir Mark Lowcock, will discuss all the day's big stories. And Monocle 24's Washington, D.C. correspondent, Chris Chermak, will report on another example of Ukraine using culture as a diplomatic lever. Stay tuned. All that and more coming up right here on the Monocle Daily. This is the Monocle Daily. I'm Andrew Muller, and I'm joined today by the political journalist and author Terry Stiasny and by Sir Mark Lowcock, fellow of the Centre for Global Development and former head of humanitarian affairs at the UN. Hello to you both. Hello. Hi. Uh, hello to you especially, Sir Mark. You have spoken to us many times on our various programmes, but this is your first appearance uh, on the Daily, and that being the case, as we often do when somebody is breaking their Daily Duck, we invite them to introduce themselves to our listeners. Basically, who are you and how how did you get here? <laughs> Thank you, Andrew. <laughs> so I've worked for the last 40 years on international development and humanitarian issues. I was a civil servant in Britain for more than 30 years, ending up as the permanent secretary of the uh, much lamented Department for International <laughs> Development, rest in peace. And then Antonio Guterres asked me to go and work for him to be the head of humanitarian affairs at the UN, which I did from 2017 to 2021. I published a book earlier in the year, which you were kind enough to invite me to talk about on humanitarian affairs and how to make the humanitarian system better. You're allowed to mention the title. It's nearly Christmas. It's called Relief Chief, a <laughs> manifesto for saving lives in dire times. Uh, and, and, and Terry, at that point, the, the titles of yours, I believe, are still freely available. <laughs> they if, are if, still if, freely. if people are wondering with what well, to stuff yes, that stock you know, in. If, you, if you're getting your book token for Christmas, uh, two political thrillers, one's called Acts of Omission and the other one is called Conflicts of Interest. The second one has a, an ungoogleable title these days, which was a bad choice. <laughs> well, we will start the show proper with Haiti, a country so intractably associated in the popular imagination with chaos and disaster that things have to be quite startlingly bad for it to climb into the headlines. But Haiti has indeed climbed into the headlines because things are quite startlingly bad. Its capital, Port-au-Prince, has become a battlefield contested by rival gangs, Dozens of people have been killed in recent weeks and the UN's High Commissioner for Human Rights, Volker Turk, has warned that the country is on the verge of an abyss. Verge might be an optimistic assessment. A few weeks ago, Haiti's acting Prime Minister, Ariel Henry, all but pleaded for foreign military intervention. Um, Mark, first of all, this is a country you know reasonably well. You were last there a few years ago. It is about three years, I think I'm right in saying, since the last UN mission packed up. Should another one be sent? I think that 
Haiti is going to need to find a way to do better in solving its own problems. It's Mm. been in continuous crisis, really. It is a country vulnerable to storms and earthquakes, but the events in Haiti now are not like most humanitarian uh, problems we see around the world, where there's some big shock like a war out breaking out or um, a storm or a new disease. Haiti's problems are continuing and outsiders are not going to be the solution uh, to them, I'm afraid. There hasn't been much, uh, just to follow that up, much indication of insiders being the solution to the problems, though. I mean, we were... I'm I'm passing your own insights off as my own here because we were discussing this just before the show that that the island of Hispaniola of which Haiti is roughly half is it's kind of a parable of the difference between good and bad government and and what it makes in that Haiti on the left-hand side has the same problems as the Dominican Republic on the right-hand side but one is more or less competently governed and the other one is barely governed at all. Yes, uh, Dominican Republic... uh used to be a much poorer country, has been better governed in recent decades, now has a thriving tourist industry, Haiti's basket case, unfortunately. There's a very strong parallel with the Korean peninsula. Mm. South Korea used to be a poor country, now one of the world's richest countries. North Korea, the opposite story, as we all know. And the fundamental thing is outsiders can't, um, and we know from experiments of this in the Middle East and elsewhere, can't change that track very well. It really... um, has to be done by Haitians themselves, I think. Uh, Terry, those interventions to which uh, Mark refers, do you think they have made a difference to how other countries now respond to challenges of this sort? Because there have been serial interventions in Haiti over the years of one kind of mandate or another. But post those ones that Mark mentions, Iraq and Afghanistan, do you think the world has become significantly warier of them? Yes, I definitely think there's much more of a reluctance to get involved in any kind of uh, humanitarian intervention which we did see much more say in in the 1990s um, and it's interesting that you say Sir Mark that you just don't think that that is a viable option you know for Haiti but the question is then how do you rebuild what is sort of to all intents and purposes a failed state I mean if the government is not able to to feed its people if the president's being assassinated if the gangs are essentially in charge on the streets and it is so dangerous that you know in international missions and visitors can can scarcely go there, then how do you start to turn that situation around without, you know, huge outside intervention? And how do you start to create, you know, functioning institutions? You know, because there was an idea that you could go in and do this and rebuild something, but that doesn't seem to be the situation anymore. So it just seems to leave the whole country in a lurch. I think there are a few things you can do and should do. So, Humanitarian agencies can get help to people, food and cash to buy things. You can work to um, keep going the nascent medical services and you should do those kinds of things. What I think we should be wary of is the idea that you could send a foreign peacekeeping force in or a UN peacekeeping force in and that would cause the Haitians to... uh, organize themselves politically in a different way. I think the track record of that way of thinking is too discredited to have another go at it in Haiti. Just to follow that up, though, Mark, um, Ariel Henry, uh, when he made his plea for military intervention, uh, I, I think I'm right in recalling, was talking specifically about the idea of the United States and or Canada uh, acting on their own. And I think implicit there was that they would arrive with a perhaps slightly punchier mandate than the Blue Helmets might. 
I, I know no two crises are the same and you can't necessarily transfer one template to another. And I know this is going back a fair way, but could something like, for example, the Australian-led intervention in Timor-Leste in 1999 serve as something of an example? Because they're similar in to the extent that Timor-Leste was being overrun by marauding gangs who had the run of the place and who had no opposition, but who interestingly seemed significantly less interested in making a fuss when actual professionals turned up. That can sometimes work. What the British did in Sierra Leone Mm. 20 years ago is of a similar model, but I think it depends on the size of the problem and the extent to which there is something you can work with in terms of political leadership that wants to do the right things and some basic institutions. I think Haiti has been pulled down a long way. And until the Haitians themselves find a way to get their act together a little bit more, the US and Canadians, I suspect, will be quite reluctant. So I I think what the world, if it's smart, is going to do is provide assistance to uh, stop huge numbers of people dying unnecessarily, work behind the scenes to say to all the Um, what passes for the political elite in Haiti. Look, you have to work out how you're going to collaborate a bit better together in your own interests and in the interests of your whole population, because we don't see any other way forward for you. Uh, Terry, there is an interesting media angle to this story as well, which is that if you wanted, uh, and it's it's a terrible thing to find yourself saying about any country, but it's true, if you wanted to do a big story about chaos, disaster, violence in Haiti, you can do that pretty much any time you like. Um, What is it about some conflicts, some crises, where they do just fade out of the global consciousness as Haiti's has until this more recent uptick in gang violence? Um, I think it is partly that sense that this is an endemic conflict and that there is nothing you can do about it. I mean, people will look back at Haiti and say, well, look, there's been decades of dictatorship. Obviously, there are, have been the huge natural disasters like the earthquake, which are that kind of thing that provokes interest. Uh, and there is, yeah, there's not sort of in crudest sort of journalistic terms a, a new peg to hang it on. Also, it's just incredibly dangerous to report from there. I mean, mm-hmm. I think, you know, just reading some of the articles, people like Oligirin who have been there and obviously are incredibly brave and go into war zones, uh, you know, generally. But, the you know, the danger of being kidnapped off the street, the danger of being killed in, in gang violence and having to go around as a journalist in the kind of armoured car that you would go around in a war zone. Most people haven't got the resources or the, the courage uh, to, to go and do that. And so it is, you know, obviously there's, you know, there's emigres, there's lots of, you know, Haitians who have left the country who might have ways of, of telling you what's going on there. But it is just a, an extremely difficult story to cover. Which, which does prompt a question going back to what you were saying, Mark, about the idea that, you know, this this is down to what passes for local political elites to sort this out um, with the assistance of NGOs that are working there. If if journalists um, have to take those kind of precautions, and eight journalists have been killed so far this year in Haiti, um, doesn't everybody else, and at some point doesn't whatever will there is in terms of establishing a political discourse, providing aid, doesn't it need to be escorted by people with guns? Well, aid agencies are very, very reluctant to be put in that position for very good reasons. And most of the professional aid agencies have got extremely good at negotiating with all the parties on the ground Mm. and navigating their way around those kind of pressures. The only circumstances where that doesn't work for them is when they're dealing with a huge state military capability, which is why there's very few NGOs in eastern Ukraine right Mm. now, because the Russians won't tolerate it. Or they're dealing with highly organised, extremely brutal terrorist groups. Witness, it was impossible for 
for humanitarian agencies to work in Iraq and Syria when large swathes of the country were controlled by Islamic State. But otherwise, aid agencies have got very good at negotiating and navigating their way through. I do think that the world will be smart to facilitate as much journalistic coverage of these underreported disasters as possible because mm. the the reason they don't get attended to is because they don't get the attention of politicians and that's because journalists can't draw them to their attention and one of the smart things NGOs do is facilitating access from journalists for journalists and protecting journalists and getting the story reported because then it gets put on the politician's agenda. Just a, a final thought on that before we move on though Terry, is there any though reason to believe that added uh, awareness uh, to use the, the voguish phrase does end up making any difference because this is something I, I notice happening especially in the social media realm, all of a sudden somebody decide with a, a certain amount of influence and a certain amount of following gets terrifically excited about something which may well have been going on for years, but it becomes the catch of the day. We saw this with the Lord's Resistance Army in Uganda, the kidnappings in Nigeria. Everybody gets tremendously excited about it for about a month and holds up pictures of, you know, hashtags on pieces of paper beneath their expression looking incredibly concerned. But I'm not convinced that anything much actually happens as a result. Uh, no, I mean, yeah, that is, I think we've got a slightly more sophisticated understanding of these kinds of, you know, the interplay between governments, wars, natural disasters and so forth than we did, say, like in the in the 80s with, you know, Band-Aid and things like that. We have moved on from that quite a lot. But the question is, yeah, who, you know, obviously, as Mark's saying, that you've got NGOs who are working there on the ground that you could help that may be able to, to rectify some of, some of the worst sort of health situations and things for people. Yeah, but the danger is that people think, well, why why would i send my money there because it's not necessarily going to going to do any good for all the all the reasons that that we've just heard and you know sort of hashtag help haiti or whatever that might be it probably is probably not going to be a, a is not necessarily what people need well let's look now at the uk and here in the uk it has often been complained about opposition leader sakir starmer that his tenure in charge of the labor party has been light on dramatic pledges of reform whether or not in direct response to this criticism he has to Today made about as dramatic a pledge of reform as a British political leader can, that in his first term as Prime Minister, should he have one, he will abolish the House of Lords. The Lords is the UK's unelected upper chamber, currently home to 786 job-for-lifers, including 25 bishops, any number of friends, associates, cronies or blackmailers of recent Prime Ministers, and a few dozen people whose qualification is primarily that one of their ancestors was a good friend of Edward IV. Here is some of what's Sakir had to say. Labour will rebuild trust by reforming the centre of government, cleaning up sleaze, nourishing the relationship between central government and the devolved authorities, and replacing the unelected House of Lords with a new, smaller, democratically elected second chamber. Not only less expensive, but also representing the regions and nations of the United Kingdom. Um, Terry, first of all, are you enthused by this idea of expunging, ejecting, removing <laughs> the Lords? I, I like a lot of the idea. I just, you know, having seen this a few times before, you tend to think that you know how it ends, which is that somebody comes along saying, yeah, we're going to do wholesale reform of the House of Lords. We, you know, we tried it in 1999, we tried it in 2012, and within a couple of years you go, we've got a very, very small piece of reform of the House of Lords that we have finally managed to get through. Before it, it, you is, know. is the problem here that the Lords <laughs> have to vote for it? Partly the problem is that the Lords <laughs> have to vote for it, partly 
it's one of those things that a lot of people don't care about at all and a few people care about very, very much indeed. Um, just before we talk about the case for an unelected versus an elected upper house, I, I do also want to play a clip from uh, George Parker at the FT who spoke to us earlier today. I think the problem with House of Lords reform, although most people would agree the House of Lords is indefensible, reforming it is a huge task. It requires a lot of parliamentary time. The House of Lords will always resist reforming itself. That can cause a logjam when you're trying to get other much more important legislation through the Houses of Parliament. And David Cameron, as the head of the coalition government, tried to reform the House of Lords in 2012 with the help of the Liberal Democrats, who were very enthusiastic about it. But in the end, they were forced to abandon it. And, you know, if you look at the House of Lords, you know, repeat attempts over 100 years have been made. And you've still got a situation where about 80 members of the House of Lords are hereditary, hereditary peers, people who owe their position there, purely to the fact that they're the relative of some illegitimate offspring of Charles II 400 years ago. It's an incredible situation. Uh, George Parker from the FT. Um, Mark, before we, we talk about the practice uh, of an unelected upper house, is there a, a theoretical case for it, do you think? The UK is not alone in doing this. Canada, for example, has an unelected Senate. The idea that you have a what is essentially a large reviewing panel of distinguished learned citizens uh, to reflect without prejudice or ambition upon the machinations of the elected house. I mean, is it a terrible idea? I think there's a pretty respectable case for that, actually, that um, enables um, somebody other than um, the most recently elected to take a longer view and mm. ask questions about, are we sure this is absolutely the right way to frame this law? Uh, what Shouldn't we have a bit of a accountability and scrutiny of it before it's just nodded through? There's a pretty respectable case for that. And most democracies do have second chambers and mm. they play a useful function. I think the issue with the House of Lords <laughs> is, um, I mean, you gave them a terrific write-up in your introduction, <laughs> Andrew, to our discussion. And... That has drawn the attention of lots of people. And the most recent attempts to reform it by the Blair government in particular then got unwound and um, subsequent governments started appointing far too many totally unqualified people. And that's what's brought the thing into disrepute again. And this isn't the most important thing, Keir Starmer, if he comes into government or the most urgent thing you'll have to deal with. But a lot of the country's longer term problems are related to failures in our governance system. And this bit of his reform, alongside more delegation, more decentralisation, might help over time to have us a bit better governed. And that would be a valuable thing for the country. I mean, Terry, is it is it reformable short of the abolition that uh, Keir Starmer is suggesting? Because I mean, obviously the present situation is ridiculous. I mean, when, when you... When you peel away the niceties, frankly, you, you can buy a seat in the Lords, uh, and, 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 and people do. Um, the idea, though, if there were guardrails and protocols and procedures so you were obviously a you know, a qualified person. Could could there be something to yes. it? Yes. I mean, I think that is probably, you know, with a Starmer government, what we would actually end up with. And there are a few things that you could do uh, relatively straightforwardly. I mean, I do think it's a good idea that you have people in 
the legislature who aren't solely professional politicians so mm. that you can have a, a doctor or a scientist or even like you know film director or somebody talking about areas that they've worked in and, and where they actually do know what they're talking about but it is too big you could reduce the size on it uh, you could stop uh, doing party political appointments to quite the same extent and you could have the same scrutiny for those kind of party political appointees so the kind of people that we've just seen Boris Johnson try to appoint or promise jobs to currently sitting MPs um, and and to actually have a have a higher bar and say well firstly there need to be fewer of you you probably shouldn't stay there forever I mean you can now decide that you're going to step down as a peer which you couldn't do before that's the kind of gradualist approach where you get and you could just you know, have greater scrutiny of people and perhaps limit the amount of time that they that they spend in the House of Lords. Yeah, I, I, I'm with you. I think a 10-year term limit and much better scrutiny on who gets put in there and fewer of them. It is important to say there are some super impressive mm. people in the House of Lords who add enormous value and who have successfully stopped successive governments in doing some of the madder, more barking things. So there's a real role to be played there. And also people who actually want to turn up and do the scrutiny rather than just saying, you know, I've, I've got a peerage which will get me a nice table in a restaurant. That you actually got to be willing to say, well, I will do X many days a year, you know, as a minimum rather than you can turn up and get your allowance and not actually vote or, or debate anything at the moment. Uh, Mark, as that clip from George Parker intimated, this would not be a small undertaking. And, and anybody who decided to do this, whether it's Keir Starmer or any other prime minister, would be investing colossal amounts of time, energy, political capital in getting this done, if indeed it proved possible to get it done at all. But is one of the problems going to be, and I'm not a constitutional scholar, but there is an issue here. This is a significant unpicking of the British uh, settlement. It is an unpicking of the British church and the British state. I mean, this is no small change. I I think it's perfectly feasible if you can generate enough consensus to make meaningful changes of the sort that Terry's laid out and we've we've just talked about. And would would there su- need to be a referendum? I don't think so, no. I mean, the Blair government didn't need a referendum and I'm, I would be very surprised if... They we weren't talking up- about abolition, though. Well, I think what's happening at the moment is a platform is being set out where it, which everyone knows would be subject to discussion and negotiation and because these turkeys do have to vote for a bit of this Christmas. So um, there will have to be, uh, as there was when Blair pushed his reforms through, there'll have to be compromise and debate and refinement of things. But some improvement on what we have now, I think, is on the agenda if he gets a chance to uh, come in and form a government. And that will probably be a good thing, depending on exactly where he ends up. Uh, Terry, just a final thought on the the politics of this. How careful would a Labour government in particular need to be about managing the discourse around this? Because once you start getting at the idea of like, well, nobody elected these people, why do they have power over us? Some of them are just there because of who they're related to. I mean, if, if you're the Prime Minister of the United Kingdom, you want to contain that conversation at a certain point, don't you? Well, you do, particularly because in 
the House of Lords, it's exactly where you see, you know, the links between, you know, the House of Lords, the Crown, you've got mm. the state opening of Parliament, you go, and we've got a new king. And yeah, that once you start to unpick the exact details of how this works, how the Crown in Parliament works, and you start to suggest that, you know, people shouldn't be there necessarily by right, and also, the, you know, the, ch- the involvement of the church as well and the bishops being there. Yeah, it is, you know, you don't want, if you start pulling on some of these threads, then it, it may come apart. But I think particularly Keir Starmer is going to want to be relatively cautious in, in how he approaches that. I mean, he's certainly not going to go in all guns blazing and start talking about republicanism or something like that. That's, that's not really going to happen. <laughs> uh, and that is a topic for another show entirely. But right now it is the time of year at which we are reminded that British lexicography is riven by a terrible schism as the boffins behind both the Collins Dictionary and the Oxford English Dictionary unveil their words of the year. We discussed Collins 2020 winner in this space recently. It was permacrisis, a phrase which none of our panel had heard, never mind uttered. The OED seeking to establish a point of difference put a shortlist to a public vote, so we should probably at least be grateful that the winner wasn't Wordy McWordface. Ahead of Metaverse, a ghastly virtual reality with which no sane person wants anything to do, and I stand with, a hashtag popular with self-regarding online blowhards, the winner is goblin mode. Had either of you previous to just now ever heard or used the phrase goblin mode? I think I'd heard it earlier this morning on, on the radio. But, completely uh, yeah. not guilty. A completely new one on me. Yeah, I, I, I'm, I'm, I'm a bit baffled by this. I had at least heard of Metaverse and I had seen in the wild the I stand with hashtag. Um, goblin mode, totally new to me, but it is, and I looked it up, um, a type of behaviour, it says here, which is unapologetically self-indulgent, lazy, slovenly or greedy, typically in a way that rejects social norms or expectations. There's a House of Lords joke there. There somewhere. Um, does that tell us anything about these times, do we think? I, I think I've, when I, once I knew what it meant, I thought it could as actually a quite occasionally quite useful word. I could sort of say, you know, I could say, yes, I've just been in goblin mode today. I haven't left the house or had a shower. Well, obviously, I have, and I have left the house now. Um, so I thought it might come in might come in handy as a word. Um, but I'd never heard anybody use it in real life or in real conversation. No, me neither. And I I gather it's sort of the gaming industry it's used to people who play lots mm. of internet games like it i can think of a few people i would apply it to uh, i think <laughs> i've seen a little bit of matt hancock in goblin mode i have to say <laughs> as was exposed on i'm a celebrity more darkly i think a bit of putin in ukraine is unattractively goblin modish mm. um how for how long we'll be using it i'm not sure it might be popular today but whether we'll still be talking about people in goblin mode a year from now, I don't know. Yeah, I, I'm I'm not convinced it's a uh, a sticker around of myself. My my suspicions are also raised somewhat by the margin of victory. This was a three horse race in which it polled ninety three percent of the vote. Now, Mark, in some of the jurisdictions in which you have worked, you'd have one or two questions, wouldn't you? Yeah, I mean, some of my jurisdictions aim for one hundred and three percent, Andrew. <laughs> but yes, it is a bit suspicious. Um, do, do either of you have any better ideas for? What should have been the word of 2022? See, last year's last year's words were more comprehensible. The Oxford one was vax, short for vaccine, obviously, and the Collins one was NFT, which was, of course, that thing where you just give somebody money and they go, "Now you own a thing which doesn't exist. See if you can sell it to some other idiot." Yeah, I mean, assuming that it has to be a new, I would probably go with Partygate. 
Party gate. That mm. was kind of the word of the year. I mean, because resignation is obviously a word that you know is, has been around. Um, but I do wonder whether this sells dictionaries. That's my my next question. Because <laughs> I haven't bought one since my my current dictionary does not have the word internet in it, which shows you how long ago I bought it. Uh, Mark, do you have a rival word? Well, of you? Uh, this may be me going into goblin mode, actually. But <laughs> I I want to make the case for uh, doing a Zelensky. Doing a Zelensky is being put in a horrible, unmanageable position doing unexpectedly brilliantly in dealing with it and winning widespread admiration and plaudits as a result. Is, is, this, is this one you have coined on your own? I'm afraid it's all my own invention. That's why there's a bit of goblin mode in there, Andrew. I, I think that's actually quite good because Zelensky as well as a collection of syllables has that sort of ring to it. You can see how languages might adopt that. I yeah, haven't registered the domain verb, yeah. name. So you're... <laughs> yeah, I, 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 don't, I don't know what the nominating procedure here is. I don't know if any of us know anybody at the Collins or the OED, but, I mean, it could, it could be a runner next year. Mark Lowcock and Terry Stiasny, thank you both very much for joining us. Finally, on tonight's show, this weekend, Ukraine celebrated the 300th anniversary of the birth of the country's most famous philosopher, Hrihohi Skovorada. Among the commemorations of his life this year was the unveiling of a statue of Skovorada in front of Ukraine House in Washington, D.C. Monocle's Chris Chermak was there to take in the festivities and to ask why cultural diplomacy matters so much to Ukraine in a time of war. My name is Solomia Horochivska. I was born in Ukraine and this is Andrei Pitkivka. Andrei Pitkivka, born in Ukraine. We are musicians. We both have doctorates in music and violin and flutes and Andrei also collects a lot of different types of flutes from all over the world but his big collection is Ukrainian flutes. You see all Most this. Most of them are Ukrainian flutes, about 250 flutes in my collection. We call ourselves Duat Gerdan. Gerdan is Ukrainian beautiful necklace from Ukrainian mountains, Carpathian mountains in Ukraine and we have a, a also a bigger ensemble. We actively perform in the area, performing Kennedy Center, Library of Congress, uh, you name it, venues and we, we promote Ukrainian culture and Ukrainian music. Diplomacy through music. It's music art very important if not culture if not language music you know we would probably be not ukrainians Oksana Markarova. I'm the ambassador of Ukraine to the United States. We are in Ukraine house. We call it home away from home. It's the Ukraine house, the, the center that we have opened on September 1st, 2021, when President Zelensky visited Washington, D.C. It was before this reinvasion of Ukraine happened. And it works in close cooperation with the embassy, but it's essentially the place that is open 24-7 for Ukrainians, but also Americans as the place where we champion Ukraine in the United States, where we have cultural events, where we have different types of business uh, forums and events. And we celebrate a lot of important dates here, but after February 24th, it also became the center of resistance, the center of taking care of our wounded warriors, you know, the fundraising. I am the Executive Vice President of the Ukrainian Congress Committee of America, which is a representative umbrella organization of the Ukrainian community, founded in 1940 here in Washington, D.C. 
tell me where we are. It's very loud. What What is happening here? This is an absolutely wonderful opportunity to celebrate Ukrainian culture, to celebrate Ukrainian identity. This is the 300th anniversary of Grigory Skoroda, who was a famous poet, a famous writer, a famous philosopher, a famous thinker, and brought forth everything about Ukrainian culture and about the Ukrainian-ism what it is to be Ukrainian at that particular time 300 years ago being subjugated in the Russian Empire much like Ukraine was subjugated for 70 80 years in the Soviet Empire and unfortunately now whether eight years ago or nine months ago that Russia is trying to to reinstill that type of Russian imperialism in Ukraine we won't be defeated we weren't defeated 300 years ago we weren't defeated eight years ago we're not going to be defeated nine months and into this war as well It's Mark Rhodes. I am a sculptor type guy. My business with my wife, uh, Alice Benzinger, is called Feral Poodle Studio, and we are in Goochland, Virginia, near Richmond. I feel just nothing but honor and gratitude to have this amazingly symbolic, metaphorical journey of this little statue wandering around like Skavorada for 30 years to finally find it, just a perfect home for it. It doesn't really make much sense anywhere else, you know? The embassy there in Georgetown, and there's no outside, you know, it's, there's not much room for cultural, you know, receptions, exhibitions, performances, you know? So they were very limited. So getting Ukraine House just changes everything. And this place is so, there's something going on here every day. It's fabulous, it's amazing. Why is a place like this so important and the role of culture so important? You are not prepared for the war. It's very difficult to get prepared for the war, right? And when the war started, of course, the priorities have been very clear. We needed more support. We needed all the security assistance and weapons. We needed uh, the financial support in order to sustain the government operations and, and in order to pay for our people and to have the electricity. And we worked on sanctions a lot. Then we, and we were thinking, you know, are we continuing the cultural diplomacy in, in this time? And it was a discussion, but it wasn't a very difficult one, to be honest, because all of us said that we were peaceful, we never attacked anyone, we never were threat to Russia. The only reason they attacked us is because we decided and we made that existential choice a couple of times during the previous centuries that we want to be free. We want to be independent and we want to be European. And it's about culture. It's about who we are. Maybe 10 years ago, people would perceive Ukraine as part of like this kind of post-Soviet uh, space. But now people know this is separate countries with a beautiful history. And we offer to the world a lot of things that was not recognized as now people like, you know, opening eyes, you know, like the Shadrach Carol the Bells. Like now everyone knows this is Ukrainian. This fight is about values, this fight is about principles, and this fight is about culture. So I think having events like this allows us to explain to Americans who we are, what is it that is very important for us. Freedom 
and science and learning something about yourself. Not only living in peace, not only having a bread and a house, but also thinking what is it that we can share with the world. When we have to fight, we fight, you know, we will not give up and we will not surrender our homeland. But what we really like to do is we like to grow food and we like to paint and we like to read and we like to write and we really hope that peace will return to Ukraine soon and we can do that 24-7 rather than looking for weapons and sanctions. That was Monocle's Washington correspondent Chris Chermak reporting from Ukraine House in the US Capitol. And that is all for this edition of The Daily. Thanks to our panellists, Mark Lowcock and Terry Stiasny. Today's show was produced by Lillian Fawcett and researched by Emily Sands. Our sound engineer was Sarah Nichol. I'm Andrew Muller here in London. The Daily is back at the same time tomorrow. Thanks for listening.